0: I want to read to you what I think is one of the most difficult passages in Mark 's Gospel, and uh, certainly, when you sit down to kind of prepare a sermon on, on a passage like this, there's a, there's a moment or two of hesitation before suddenly the thing unravels, and you suddenly see what this, the profound truths in this passage which, in this passage, which are unbelievably important to us, and uh, particularly, particularly to those who are skeptical, I think um, Jesus is addressing skeptics here on this occasion. And the things he says are as relevant today as they were then. But for those of us, obviously, who are also believers, who love Jesus and who are um, already, were already convinced, um, the things he says in here ought to elicit from our hearts deep, deep love and worship for him. We need to see afresh the wonder of what he did for us and what he did in this world and also be equipped. You know, we hear the almost exact same objections, not in the same words, but the same tenor, the same motivation uh, in, when we're talking about Jesus with people we know. And we need to be equipped to know how do, we, how do we respond? How would Jesus respond? And this is exactly what he shows us here. So I want to read to you Mark 3, verse 22, and uh, we'll read a couple of paragraphs. It says, and the scribes, and remember these were the legal experts, the teachers of the law, the most some of the most devout men, religious men in society. says so the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So it's a different group of scribes from ones we've encountered up to now in Mark's Gospel. And they've come to seek him out, especially this particular group. It says, they came down from Jerusalem. We're saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. Which is to say, in the next line, And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So they are associating him with... With, with Satan essentially and, it says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand and if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end to his critics, he's talking to his skeptics here. And you can feel the emotion. Uh, as humans, I think one of the characteristics we see, we certainly see it in the day and age in which we live, is that we struggle to disagree with one another in a civil manner. And uh, you can see this even if you gather with friends. Who, if, if you disagree with them on particular subjects, you know there are certain subjects which you will not bring up, which you might tiptoe around. The obvious ones are politics, and especially in our day and age, I think, where um, you can find yourselves on different ends of a spectrum on political issues, and it can it can divide people. Um, faith is an obvious one. You know, when I. Hang with friends who don't believe in Jesus. It's certainly a subject you think twice before you just casually um, talk about because you are conscious. Wow, this is going to bring an un, un, uh, uh, a new dimension into the conversation. Um, cream teas. Uh, which way, <laughs> the order in which you sh- should... Layer your clotted cream in your jam. Because for me, that's always been an emotive issue. And whenever I've discussed with people, uh, people who put the cream on first, followed by the jam, I think they're totally crazy. So, and you can, they're just certain subjects you avoid in life, right? <laughs> so why is it that we, we, are, we find that we, we disagree in an ugly way with one another on things that we care about? And, you know, why is it that... <laughs> that we instead of saying you know i've considered your point of view and having a thoughtful and calm and cool and rational approach to things why is it instead of that that it's quite common to vilify opponents and to almost say you're of the devil which is basically what jesus skeptic skeptical critics are saying to him in this passage they're coming to him fresh they don't know him they're coming to him from jerusalem he's not been anywhere near jerusalem to this point So they don't know him, they've not met him, they've never heard him. But they're coming with their criticism of him. And part of the reason for this, and this is a hugely important issue, is that I I was reading a couple of years ago a book by a man called Jonathan Haidt, who's a a secular psychologist. He wrote a a famous and best-selling book called The Righteous Mind. And he talks about the reasons why we disagree so passionately with one another on important issues. And he says the reason is because we are not as rational as we think we are. We think that our opinions are formed by our minds, by taking into account the data and assessing the facts. But he says, no, no, no. You're led mostly by your intuition, your gut feeling. And then you bring your mind to bear to find all the reasons later on for the things which you've already decided about. And he uses the picture in the book of a rider on an elephant. He says, the rider thinks he's in control. That's a picture of your mind. He thinks he's in control of this great beast but of course, the beast is truly in control and the beast is going wherever it wants to go. And he says, that's what happens. Your, your intuition leads you and then later on you bring reasons to catch up with yourself. And there are a number of reasons why this is true. And I'm trying to give you a window, I think, into the mind of the skeptics who, were, who came to Jesus that day and what, was, what, what, what motivated them and what motivates skeptics today when they're engaging with Christianity. A number of things are going on here. One is that we're much more emotional than we'll admit when it comes to thinking through important and deep issues. They certainly were bringing their emotion to, this, to the question of Jesus. Not least because they, they had a very similar job to him, teachers of the law. But he was much, much more popular than they were at this stage. And so they're bringing their emotion to the table Long before they've assessed whether the things he's saying and the claims that he makes about himself are true. We have emotions. We also have prejudices if you think about it. Now I think this is a prejudice is to make a judgment without the facts. And I think this is never more true in my experience than in talking to people about Jesus. It's a rare thing to encounter somebody who does not believe in Jesus, but who has also done their due diligence in terms of their understanding and their reading of him, and their assessment of the evidence about him. It's rare even to meet a person in our modern society who has read the Gospels, like the books like Mark. And of course, you might immediately push back and say, "Well, what obligation is there to read these texts that that, that, that potentially are not true? And like, why should I read them?" But the, the answer to that is that this is, not, this is not like some failing to just read the hundred most important novels of all time and to not have been familiar with, with having read Dickens or Dostoevsky or any of these guys. It's not, the, it's not the same thing. The Gospels have shaped our world more than any other books that have ever been written alongside the letters of Paul especially. And to have failed to at least look at the evidence is a is a real problem, isn't it, in our day and age? It's, it's a prejudice, and it undergirds a lot of our skepticism when we come to looking at the person of Jesus Christ. We have emotion, we have prejudice. Another factor that's at work here is that we are much more simplistic in the way we make assessments about things than we'll, than we'll admit. You know, how easy it is to hear a two-minute bulletin on the news and then have a, a half-an-hour debate with a friend um, over a pint, because we, we take sound bites and then we form opinions that are only half baked and half, 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 half accurate. And this, of course, is true in the way people engage with faith, in the way people engage with Jesus. They've heard something somewhere about Christianity or about Jesus himself. And therefore, they have already formed an opinion that's based on a simplicity, a a simplifying, a categorizing, and a kind of walling off. And so, for all these reasons, and I'm not just saying this is true of a skeptic, this is true of all of us, this is human nature. But it seems to me to be particularly true when we come to the deepest, most threatening issues in life. And Jesus is threatening. He's threatening in the sense that, wow, to, to come at his claims is to approach the possibility of your life being utterly transformed and turned upside down and everything that you thought was important being being rearranged no wonder no wonder that it's safer to say in our skepticism and this is certainly could be true in your own life it certainly be true in the lives of people that you know who are around you and so what these men do is they come to him with their opinion already formed and it really comes down to this. They say, they say that Jesus is bad. His family have said that he's mad. In the earlier verse, it said when his family heard about, him, about what was going on, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. His family think he's mad. These skeptics think that he's bad, that he's evil. It reminded me when I was reading this of, of C.S. Lewis' Trilemma. You remember how he said that a lot of people in our day and age think that Jesus is a good moral teacher? But he said that's the one thing you cannot ever say about Jesus. He says you've, basically, he says you've got three options. He says he's either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, because he went around claiming that he was God, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He says you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not let that, left that open to us. He did not intend to. These men are occupying that second opinion. They say he's bad. And this is not an unfamiliar criticism or reason, even in our day and age. A lot of people dismiss Christianity with the belief that it is basically bad. And this is the question which Jesus answers here. And he gives us three answers to this charge. Here's the first one. He tells his critics that he... If you look closely, you'll see that he is breaking apart the systems of evil in this world. Not enforcing and building them. He's breaking apart the systems of evil. And he puts it in this language. When he says, he asks them the question, How can Satan cast out Satan? If if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying... They're saying of him that he's evil, that he is part of the problem. In our day and age, we hear it in language like this, like we did in our last salt live event, where people say that religion, as Christopher Hitchens' term, religion poisons everything. Religion leads to oppression, religion leads to wars, religion leads to control, it leads to the manipulation of individuals, it leads to all kinds of evils that are are flourishing in the world under the guise of religion. Of course, some of that is true and some of that is fair, but is it true of Jesus is the question. And what Jesus invites these men to do, he says, he's saying, in effect, you're coming at me cold, you're coming at me without even having looked at the facts, and he's basically inviting them to look at... The results of the things he's doing and teaching and saying, am I building the systems of evil or am I demolishing them? Because if you look honestly at what he's doing, you can see that what he's doing is he's demolishing the systems of evil around him. The evil influences in people's hearts, minds, and lives. And I don't think that's a particularly difficult case to make. In fact, it's probably one of the greatest reasons that people, especially now with couple of millennia of track record, one of the greatest reasons why people ought to think very deeply about the claims of Jesus. Because he has done good to this world. You think about the context into which he said this at the time. I mentioned to you a couple of months ago some of these facts, but I'll just reiterate them. How the Roman Empire into which Jesus was born and which he grew up was deeply wicked in so many ways despite the unbelievable advances in culture and, uh, and building and the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that, that covered the world in the midst of that the underbelly I suppose was the reality that a third of the empire were slaves that Roman men had total sexual freedom to do what they want with who, wanted with whoever they wanted to do it with that the societal differences between citizen, non-citizen, between wealthy and poor were so embedded and ingrained and enforced that oppression was just part of your day-to-day experience of life. And I don't think it's hard to see when the impact that Christ and his gospel made upon that world. You read revolutionary passages in quite, um, you know, in words which you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, this doesn't sound like revolutionary language, but it is. In letters like James's letter to one of the churches where he says, if, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. You think this sounds utterly unthinkable to us that you would treat someone like that. But it's only unthinkable because of the Bible. It's only unthinkable because these things were written. Because these things began to infect and change and transform the way we saw humanity at the deepest level. It was the biggest kind of paradigm shift. Another verse which stood out, stands out in my mind on this is, of course, that famous a line in one of Paul's letters in Galatians where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Christianity, in a non-violent way, brought about seismic shifts in the way people experienced their day-to-day lives and dismantled systems of evil. And that is exactly the way Jesus answers his critics. You want to be critical of Jesus? Well, you must, you must take account of the difference he's made in this world. And it's not just true of what he did to that empire there and then. You'll know that just in this last century, that some of the, the greatest evils that we've seen have been the atrocities that were committed by godless secular governments, the concentration camps and the gulags. Things which are a blight on secularism and which are unthinkable in a world in which you you imbibe the teaching of Jesus. He came to undo the systems of evil. And I know a common criticism against Christians, and certainly I've heard this many times myself, would be, well, what about the track record of the church? Because it is not perfect. We look at the history of the church and we say, well, it's not always clear which side we are on. You know, when Jesus says, you know, Satan, he's basically saying, well, which side does it look like I'm on? Well, it doesn't always look obvious which side the church has been on. And some of the things that the church has done in its history have been evil. But I don't think that's a particularly difficult question to answer, simply for the reason that when the church has done evil things in the name of Jesus, those things have not been consistent with the teachings of Jesus or of the Gospels. And in fact, it's been the Bible itself that's given us the resources to reform and transform the church from the inside out. The same cannot be said of a world in which you take Jesus out of the picture. You're left without the resources for building a world in which justice rules and in which the oppressed are raised up and in which people experience the flourishing what God intended. He says to them, in effect, look at the fruit of my life. I am demolishing the systems of evil. Here's a second thing he says to them, and this is where things get a little bit more personal for you and me. He says that he has come to set people free. You see it in the 27th verse where he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's basically describing his strategy for accomplishing his mission on earth. The strong man is what is elsewhere described in the New Testament as the prince of the power of the air. It's the, it's the understanding that in this world... We, we are not truly free because we're experiencing a kind of a slavery under the power of Satan. And that sounds like, it sounds like bizarre language to use in our day and age, doesn't it? To talk about Satan and demons and powers and oppressors and all these kinds of things that you cannot even see. But of course, we can immediately demystify that a little bit when you understand that the Bible doesn't talk about this as some kind of weird, occultic, bizarre Thing that's going on. It just puts it in very simple terms that basically the way we experience slavery to this, what Jesus calls strongman, is through the power of lies, through worldviews. And what Jesus is depicting here is somebody raiding a strong- the strongman's house, firstly by binding the strongman and then plundering his goods, which, in other words, liberating people from under his power and possession what he's describing is his own passionate role as the great emancipator of humankind, which is what we believe he achieved at the cross. It was in his moment of deepest, darkest defeat, seeming defeat on the cross, that he bound the strong man and began to liberate people from prison. And for that to resonate in your heart at all, you have to be able to identify at some level with the idea what it feels like in your day-to-day experience of being enslaved to something. The Bible shows that this kind of slavery works in all kinds of ways in our, in our day-to-day experience. It talks about, not in this language, but it describes psychological slavery. I think about the power of things like anxiety, how it can be such a life-dominating issue, even if you hide it well. It can be just below the surface. Fears. Many people go through life with anger that is barely understood and not addressed, but it's just there, just below. Bitterness, wrongs that were done to you at some point in time. And these things cannot but have a deep, deep effect on your day-to-day experience of life. And all of them, all of them are described in the Bible as ways that the the enemy plays on us and plays with us and enslaves us. I think about some of the behavioral slavery that we experience in life. I think we're, you know, more and more it's becoming possible to speak about this even in our society, whether that's because it's more prevalent or whether it's just because we now have more language for it, I don't know. But you think about how people are bound up in behaviors which they want to end and be free from, but they cannot so simply walk away from. You think about sexual licentiousness or slavery. You think about how people are bound up with stuff they do not want to carry on doing in that realm. Particularly how people struggle in an ongoing way with pornography and much else. You think about how gambling gets a hold on people's lives. How people can have unhealthy relationship with, with food, either too much of it or too little of it. But either way, this is no, this is, this is no light issue. This is, it can be a life-dominating thing and even a life-destroying thing for some. You think about our complex relationship with work. Even there, even there, people experience a kind of Slavery whether because they're too lazy, out of fear perhaps, or overwork and work themselves to death through some desire to attain something and who knows what. But all of these are described in the Bible as, Bible as forms of bondage or of being enslaved in some way. You think about even in our relationships we can experience this kind of, these, these, these experiences of not being free. How your relationships can be Constantly overshadowed by, by issues of fear, social anxiety, control, manipulation, the desire for approval. All this kind of stuff can be life-dominating for people. And into this, into this, this is what Jesus says he came to come and free us from. And that's certainly true when you begin to look at the roots of the, why we experience slavery in different parts of our lives. Part of the analysis is, and I think we're comfortable with this language these days, that, that to some degree we're victims of something. I think Jesus is acknowledging that here. You're a victim to the extent that Satan has power over you. <laughs> he plays with you. But that's not the whole picture. The, the other side of this picture is, of course, also that that the root of it, there is, there is always sin that we need to deal with and repent of and turn away from. And that is not to put you in a place of hopelessness. On the contrary, because we have Christ, because we have the gospel, we uniquely have the resources to deal with the roots of sin, which perpetuate the problems of slavery in your day-to-day life. And until a person can confront what's going on in their own heart, acknowledge it, confess it, and repent of it, they're unable to pull up these roots that seem so stubborn. The New Testament talks about this so clearly. And we ignore this at our own peril. But you can hear descriptions like this in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says there are multiple powers at work on your life from which you need to experience freedom. There is, of course, the power of Satan, which is what Jesus is describing in Mark 3. There's also the power of the world and its swirling currents. The the many forces of culture and, and thought which swirl around us and control us in ways we do not even perceive. And then perhaps worst of all is you. What Paul calls here your own flesh. Sometimes translated as the sinful nature. It means that From as early as you can remember, you've been a rebel. There's been parts of you that have fought against God. You've been unable to submit and surrender your own will and desires and bring them into order. They are out of control. And he says, this was a state of every one of us before we met Jesus. Praise be to him. Even if, as Christians, we still struggle, we still have frustrations. I know so many friends, precious friends, who tell me the stories of the way Christ liberated them. He came, he bound the strong man, and he pulled us out from his grip. People who've walked away from life-dominating fears. People who've experienced the release of shame that came on the back of dark abuse, even by family members and so on as a child. People who've been released from really toxic and unhealthy relationship with, with food and, or with some other life-controlling uh, mental issue. People who found themselves caught in addictions and behaviors that just seemed to be constantly swirling in their life, that they were constantly falling, getting up, falling again, and then they found freedom for the first time. People who walked around with guilt and shame. And Jesus came and lifted us up, didn't he? I don't think you can criticize Jesus until you come up the better answer than the one he gave. He says things like this. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's in John 8, Galatians 5. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Romans 6, Paul puts it in these wonderful words. He says, thanks be to God. That you, who were once slaves of sin, and be honest, he's saying we all know what it feels like to be bound in sin that we cannot get free from. He says, "You who once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart." In other words, almost there's there's almost an effortless sense in which your life changes because you change from the inside out. You express a new form of life in which you want to obey Jesus and not walk in the old ways. He says you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You think, what? You're still a slave? Well, obviously, as uh, Bob Dylan put it, you've got to serve somebody. Life Life is always service to something. But better you serve the the Savior who died for you, who bled for you, who loves you, who is compassionate towards you, who means you well, who wants to bless you and confer upon you unimaginable blessings into eternity than to serve something which will ultimately destroy you. I think there's a confidence in what Jesus says to his critics because he knows that when he encounters these broken people that he was meeting with on a day-to-day basis, he changes their lives. He transforms their lives. There is a dearth of answers in the world in which we live. You talk to doctors, they can't fix the problems, particularly the problems of people's minds. You talk, you read the media, and you discover that there are so many, there's so much brokenness in our world that we have no answers to. We need a liberator. We need an emancipator. We need somebody who will be our champion, who will give us freedom. And Jesus is saying, I'm that man. I came to bind up the enemy and bring you out of darkness. And he has done it, hasn't he, friends? And if you're a Christian, you're saying, well, look, I still feel like there are these chains on me, that there are problems in my life that I cannot seem to find a way out of. Christ has not finished with you yet. He is doing his work. Here's the last thing he tells them. He talks to them about the extraordinary offer of forgiveness that was coming through him from the Father which he had come to extend to mankind which these men knew very little of. He puts it like this in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins, all sins all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. We need to wrestle with this for a moment or two. Think about the positive thing Jesus is saying here. If you know anything of Christ and you may be tracked with us through this gospel up to now... The thing which got him into trouble above all, particularly with these religious men who were criticizing him, was the company he kept. You remember in chapter 2, one of the criticisms came like this. It says, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They could not comprehend of the reason why a man who was preaching righteousness would keep keep such poor company. And the answer is very clear from what Jesus is saying here. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Jesus came with this extraordinary and radical offer of total forgiveness for even the darkest secrets of your heart. And unfortunately, that is not something that we easily accept. I don't just mean accepting forgiveness for ourselves, but we do not easily accept the idea that God could be gracious to the worst among us. The scribes couldn't accept it, and I think that we see the exact same mentality very powerfully at work in our day and age. That we are in an age of judgment. We're an age in which we do not know what the word grace means. I was reading an article by an American lady called Helen Andrews who wrote an article called Shame Storm in which she described an experience of being on a debate panel and uh, an ex-boyfriend who was on the panel with her, they were discussing political things, slated her personally. It was an ad hominem Argument. He went against her as a person based on his personal experiences of her and told the world how evil she was. And the, the, the video about her went viral on YouTube. And wherever she went for years after that, and even to this day, people would reference that video. And she wrote about this experience and she put it like this in these poignant words. She says, shame is now both global and permanent. To a degree, unprecedented in human history. No more moving to the next town to escape your bad name. However far you go and however long you wait, your disgrace is only ever a Google search away. And they call it these days, we even have a term for it, trial by social media. You know, we we tend it's, it's such a bizarre irony, isn't it? We think we live in a liberal society in which there is acceptance, but on the contrary, we live in a society in which anybody who has broken the rules that we now have established will be forever remembered for the things which they did wrong and in which it's very hard to scrub out your record. There was talk, wasn't there, not so long ago about the laws introduced for the right to be forgotten. And I think, friends, that is, that is a beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus was offering a couple of millennia before that we even used that term. And even before that, going right back into the Old Testament, I think about verses like this in Psalm 103. Where God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friend, if you have not experienced forgiveness in your life, I want to... I just want to tell you that it's the sweetest thing you can ever experience. To know that the God who made you, who sees you, who sees the darkest inclinations of your heart, who understands your motives, and who has noticed everything you've ever done, can so separate you from your sin that it's as though your sins were not yours. It's put like this in Hebrews 8, where God says, For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You think, well, how can God forget? I don't think God can forget. But he's saying, I choose not to remember. I look at you differently. I look at you as forgiven And this was the scandal that Jesus was called up about. It's the same scandal that's at work in our day and age. Because the church is only for broken people. The church is only for people who can see that they need this grace. They need this forgiveness. And those who remain on the outside and say, I don't need forgiveness, those are the people to whom this warning comes when Jesus offers this warning. And he says, in these words, which I think are perhaps the most frightening of all the words in all the Bible, where he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And You must wrestle with what he is saying. I gave it a lot of thought over the years, and particularly this week as I was preparing And I I think we just need to rule out some wrong understandings of this because sometimes sometimes Christians struggle with what did Jesus mean here. I don't think he means that the Holy Spirit is the most sensitive member of the Trinity. That to offend him is just sulking in a corner somewhere and he's never going to forgive you. And nor does he mean that you might have inadvertently offended the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and you'll forever be judged on account of that mistake you made at some point, maybe even not realizing what you did. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, you must understand this. Every experience or every opportunity you have for access to the gospel comes to you by virtue of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, Christ... Christ made it possible for every human being on the face of the planet to know the forgiveness of God when he died on the cross for your sins. But you and I will never know what it means to access that grace, access that forgiveness, until and unless God's Holy Spirit begins to move on your heart. Until he begins to awaken your conscience that you are aware, even, that there is a God with whom you need to get reacquainted and reconciled, until you're aware that the thing which he holds against you is valid, that you are a sinner. And the Holy Spirit brings all these things to your awareness. And he brings to your awareness the reality of who Jesus is. It's the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, who testifies, who witnesses like a witness in a court of law to who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God. So every good thing that we as Christians experience about Christ and the gospel comes to us because the Holy Spirit began a work in your life. And he may be working in your life even right now. At the beginning of the gospel of Mark, it talks about how Jesus came to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. It was the new thing that God was doing through his son. That he was pouring out. The grace of God through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that people could begin to know him as the Spirit worked on hearts and resurrected people and brought them into relationship with him. And Jesus is saying this, and it is truly sobering. He's saying, God can forgive you of anything. Absolutely anything. Even the things which you cannot forgive yourself for. He can forgive you of anything. But the one thing he cannot forgive you for is an unwillingness to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and a permanent resistance to that work in your life. In other words, he cannot forgive you if you refuse to be forgiven. And the thing that we ought short to weigh with all of us, whether because you find yourself in a position where you have not been reconciled to God and you need to be aware of what that means for you, or because, as Christians, we know so many people with whom we want to share the goodness of what Jesus has done in our lives. and we, But we need to grow in our compassion and passion for people, right? The thing which we need to carry with us is just how long eternity is. When Jesus says that he's guilty of an eternal sin, I read these words from John Piper, which I thought were well, weighty. He said... The worst news in the world is that God will never forgive you. When a human says, I'll never forgive you, we may go on with life. You know, you kind of shrug and you're frustrated, but basically your life carries on when someone says, I'll never forgive you. He says there are others we can turn to, and never really doesn't mean never. But when God says... I will never forgive you, then there is nobody to turn to in all the universe. And never really means never. If God says to you, never will I forgive you, then a million ages from now, his verdict will be like granite. His sentences are as unbreakable as his pardons. I want us to bow our heads and just come before this Savior Jesus once more. Here's what it comes down to, friends. You can sort of see Jesus just shaking his head at these men and saying look at my life look at what I'm doing I'm doing good I'm undoing the forces of evil I'm setting people free from life dominating problems and I'm offering forgiveness what about that is there to criticize and it's the goodness of this saviour that we need to let rest with us now. Perhaps because, first of all, in our own hearts, we will then return to him with worship and adoration and thanksgiving as we ought. But then also, so that Christ can put into you A strength and a robust confidence that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are offering to the world the greatest possible cure and hope for the darkness we find ourselves in. Which is just to say, people need Jesus. I want that to sit with us for a moment. Of course there's courtesy in dealing with skeptics and critics, but there' also to be a robust confidence, an assertiveness that says, "No, Jesus is good. And friend, it may be the case that this evening you are becoming aware that you need the good work of Jesus in your life. Maybe you're identified with some description of slavery that I offered earlier. Maybe you're just aware that you haven't been forgiven. And I want to invite you there was a hymn going around in my morning in my mind this morning, which had a, has a verse that says this. It says, "There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein, in other words, drawn from the veins of Jesus Christ, a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains." I'm not ashamed of this saviour he is precious do you need to receive that forgiveness this evening Christ would invite you and he comes so gently to us he loves us he doesn't come in a harsh or commanding way but he invites Father, we love you and we want to respond to the goodness of Christ. Bring out from our hearts passionate worship for you now. In Jesus' name, amen.